Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Francis Wade, and I'm leading the session that you are about to attend on the four steps to help employees self-train. And just to reiterate, those of you who, for those of you who weren't here, the resources for this session are available at the URL that's on the screen. I'll actually be referring to it as we go along. They're interactive. There is a part that will ask for your email address. If you don't feel comfortable doing that or entering it, you can enter a dummy email address. That will work just as fine. It's just that you won't get a copy of the slides because they have to be emailed to you. So welcome to the session. Why don't we jump right in with a sort of a tough question. What do you do about the new unruly learner? This is the person who sits in your training, or people who sit in your training, and check out, get bored, use their social media, go into all other kinds of conversations that you don't want to have. What do you do about them? So I'm going to come down to answer that question, together with all of us. So how many of you have had this experience? You have a trainer, sorry, you have a learner who is in your session, and as you start to speak and they understand where you're going, they start to Google <laughs> your destination. In other words, they want to get to the bottom line faster than you can. So as you're speaking and you're, you know, you're going to wrong Robin and my name is and your name is and why are you here, and the, they've already, within five minutes, gotten to the bottom line of the training. They've found your punchline within the first five minutes. Then they spend the next five minutes watching a YouTube video that gives them the essence of the training. So 10 minutes in, you lost them. They've already figured out where you want to go in their minds, and they've now checked out. How many of you have that experience? Let me see. Mostly on this side. Tell them to do that. But let me ask, just be honest, answering this question. How many of you came into this session already planning to check your email while you were here? <laughs> Nobody. So untrue. Because that's what the modern learner is doing. They're figuring that between the 10th minute and the end of the session, they're going to get some good work done. So they come in prepared to do other things because in their minds, it's going to be slow, it's going to be boring, it's going to be traditional. Right? They're expecting one size fits all. And they're pretty sure that that size won't fit them. And they leave. Sometimes they physically leave, and sometimes they mentally leave. Sometimes they become pranksters, but they're no longer in learning mode because they never really got there to begin with. Or they believe that they've gotten the answer from a real cool article that just downloaded from some blog somewhere. So is the answer to use some more force, more pressure? Because what's going to happen eventually is that they'll just stop coming to the training. So do you go to their boss and say, Mr. or Mrs. Boss or Miss Boss, could you please force your people to answer? Some argue that with the short attention spans and the distractions and the social media and smartphones and how busy they are, that bite-sized training is the answer. So you take a whole bunch of information you break it down to little bitty bits of information, and then you dole out the little bits of information in five minutes learning periods. So I'm going to argue today that that's not a feasible solution. It's a partial solution. And in time, that solution will get us as trainers into more trouble than the benefit it provides. Before I go any further, let me just do a check-in, see who I'm talking to here. How many of you are trainers? You stand in front of a room. Plenty, okay. How many of you develop training, whether online? More people, okay. How many of you are managers of trainers? Okay. How many of you are sort of VPs and you're beyond managing trainers, but you manage learning for your organization? A few, okay, good. 
Great. Okay. Well, the problem is that the learner is coming in and expecting traditional learning, which is, I talk, you listen. I know you don't. I'm full, you're empty. And the learner sort of has learned that over time, the way to participate or the way to learn is to sit back and wait for something to happen. Now, one good thing about that approach is that it allows the trainer to build. When learners were less impatient, they would wait for the trainer to build and get to you know, the part that's really impressive. So they would wait. You, know, you can see these guys are like patiently following along. So we don't have that luxury anymore, right? If we don't grab them quickly and powerfully and shake them in their boots. So a part of the problem is what I just mentioned, the paradigm that says that the trainer has all the information and the learner has none of it. The empty full frame of mind. So I'm going to invite us to give up that idea today. How many of you remember sitting for three, these are the older folks, those of you who are younger, but for those of you who are younger, back in 1995 and thereabouts, we actually sat in classes for three days to learn Microsoft Windows. There was like training for three days to learn operating system. Now, I don't know if it's the water or if the internet has just blessed people with bigger brains, but <laughs> today's learner picks up operating systems and apps within minutes. What took us three days of, after the three days, you're like, I don't know if I really understand what, except, oh, it, it was long, it was, we didn't even understand back in 1995 what just happened. <laughs> but today, the learner is picking up an app three, four, five apps per day, mastering them and moving on. So they're learning way more quickly than we used to. Like I said, I don't know if it's because they're smarter, but it is happening. And back then, it was all about one kind of training fitting everyone. So the learner is learning more quickly. They're expecting us to move more slowly. They're expecting us to give them one size fits all. And as a result, it's not enough. We're not capturing their attention. Okay. So how do you capture attention? Well, what's emerging is, as you probably know, uh, models that involve hands-on experience. Giving the learner an opportunity to actually put their hand or a hand on the panel that looks dangerously filled with voltage, right? <laughs> As you stay behind them and, no, no, no! <laughs> so we know that that's working, right? <laughs> so as you could tell from my accent, I'm not from around these parts. <laughs> I was raised in Jamaica and came here from Kingston a couple of days ago. <laughs> but I was, as a kid, when I was growing up, there was a famous fellow who taught swimming. His name was uh, Clarky, Mr. Clark. And why he was famous among the kids was that if you got sent to Mr. Clark for swim lessons, you knew that the first thing that he did was to throw you in the deep end. No, that's probably against a law. <laughs> that, and you don't, did anyone have, have an experience like that where you were just thrown in and he kind of watched you sort of, and just before you, something bad happened, he pulled you out and then, but what you were left with, even though I don't recommend the experience, but you were left with a multi-sensory experience. You were given, you got some serious feedback. <laughs> you knew something before, afterwards that you didn't know before. See, Clarky didn't sit you down in a classroom and teach you the elements of swimming. He threw you into the water, and you were never the same. Talk to anyone who he trained since those days. They talk about the horror that it was. But what they learned was, so we now know that 
this kind of experience makes a profound difference. It opens the mind to learning. It opens the mind to self-teaching. So we know that if you can have the learner in the seat demanding from you, the trainer or the designer of training, that I need the following kind of learning, how can I get it? If you're the one who can provide it powerfully, then power to you, power to them also. But it's far better if they're the ones who are thinking of themselves as the teachers. It's a little bit different than the old paradigm. Actually, it's a lot different. Self-teaching yourself math? Really? Well, we'll see. At the core of self-teaching is some way of evaluating yourself. So, of course, as you were uh, floundering in Mr. Clark's swimming pool, you were evaluating your skills at that moment. <laughs> and you were realizing something profound about lots of things related to swimming. Life, death. <laughs> but you came away with something in your gut that you didn't have before. And you were extremely ready to learn at that point. You know, I remember a friend of mine, she thought she could swim and her parents tell, used to tell the story that she would just jump in the pool thinking that swimming was easy and that she could do that. We'll talk about this some more. So if as a training designer or a trainer, you can get people in the seat of being self-learners, self-teachers, if you can give them an evaluate, uh, so a way to evaluate themselves, if you can give them a multi-sensory experience, then you would have won. So maybe you're concerned because I've raised your, maybe some questions for you around why people are behaving the way they are, why they are not engaged in training the way they could be. But I want to take you from concern to mastery. This is our journey today. Mastery of a particular way of designing training that hits all of the buttons that we talked about before. And that's that promise of the time that we'll spend together. So let's start with a brand new, maybe not brand new, but a different point of view. So this point of view developed is that the best way to start training is to fail. And this wasn't true 20 years ago, but today, the best way to open the mind of a learner is to throw them into the deep end of the pool. Metaphorical deep end of the pool. But it's to give them an opportunity to not succeed. And not succeeding, I'm not talking about theory, okay? I'm not talking also about information or knowledge. I'm not talking about giving them a memory test. I'm talking about somehow evoking an experience of not knowing. So how do you do that? Well, I had my, my own experience of not knowing. I used to lead a time management program that was very prescriptive in nature, up until 2003. And the program said, do this, do this, do that, and do the other. Very prescriptive about the behaviors. In fact, it also said, use this language while you're doing this, and that, and the other. Extremely prescriptive. So I had a moment when I spoke to my mom. So my mom did my training in Jamaica. It wasn't my training. I was actually licensed to do it, but I did it on behalf of a company. Led it in Jamaica. She did it. Talked to her three months later. I said, how was the training? How was the stuff that I taught you? How are you using it? And she said, oh, that. <laughs> Um, I, I don't really use it, not, it was, it's not really for me, it's not for other people, it's not, not. So I told her why it was for her, <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> and it didn't work, she never used any of the training. But I came away sort of puzzled. Why is it that it didn't connect with her? Why, did it, why didn't she just fall into the behaviors I wanted her to? Well, I was following this old paradigm of giving her something that 
she hadn't failed that. She was already retired. She didn't need to be more effective. There wasn't a, a reason other than to please her son that brought her into the training, and I didn't provide it either. So at the beginning of the training, there was something missing, a failure, a failure that could have motivated her. All right, so failure, oh boy. So to contextualize that a little bit, I want to introduce you to a framework. How many of you are familiar with the jobs to be done framework from Clay Christensen? Okay, a couple people. Okay, it has nothing to do with training, okay? It's about marketing. But the idea behind his philosophy and his theory is that products are usually developed from the inside of companies who then try to find people to sell the product to. So it's training sometimes, sometimes. But his argument is that where products should come from is a match between a person and the job they're trying to get done. Say that again. A match between the person and the job they're trying to get done. Where there's a gap, that's where the product is. So he's talking about a profound way of sitting inside of the experience of the learner or of the customer in his case, finding out what they're trying to get done and seeing where the stumbling, block, stumbling blocks are and then developing a product from there. So his world is the world of new product introduction. We're not in that world. We're in the world of training, but maybe we could use this. But this is not a class about theory, so let's actually do it for real. So you, and he uses this language. You hired ATD to get a job done. So he uses an example in his books of hiring a milkshake. Why do people hire a milkshake? And he says, okay, there's a particular job they want to get done. And he says the job they want to get done is to feel satisfied, especially early in the morning when a lot of them are sold, to um, feel comfortable on the way to work. So he breaks it all the way down. But forget about him. You hired ATD, spent good money, right? You hired ATD to get a job done. So I want you to work with a partner, and I want you to explore answers to this question. What job did you hire ATD to get done over the next four days? What's the job you hired this conference to do for you? Okay, so grab a partner, and I want you to spend two minutes going back and forth. The person with the longer hair goes first. Okay, finish up wherever you are. Let's get some answers up. Who has an answer? Some answers. Let's start with anyone. Me, me, me. Anyone? I didn't hear the question. The, why did you hire? Just to answer to the question, why did you hire this ATD conference? Well, expand what we already know, see new things that are coming up, be able to um, take it back to where we work and expose them to what we picked up here. Great, great, great. I, I imagine that's the case for many people here today. That you hired the ATD conference with a number of goals in mind. You were willing to spend the time and the money, and you convinced perhaps your boss to send you to the conference, and that's why you're here. All right, let's imagine for a moment that we are on a team, and recognizing that there are real people who want to get something real from this conference, what if we could come up with an app that could help them to make the most of their time here? Now, I know there is an ATD app, and I have it on my phone. <laughs> Thank you very much. It has a lot of information on it. But beyond the information, let's talk about what it would take for us to create an effective app that would actually train people to get the most out of this conference that they've hired. So let's put ourselves in that. 
Let's put a price on it. What if the app were available for 99 cents in the App Store, Google or Apple? What would it take for you to hire that app for 99 cents? Right, but you wouldn't know it before. What would a good return look like? So once again with your partner, what would a good return look like? What would that app have to do for you in order for you to pay 99 cents to download it to learn how to make the most of your experience here at ATD? So with your partner, one minute back and forth. Okay, finish up there. So designing an app for training purposes is a lot like designing training. It is kind of the same thing, right? So, hold on, just jumped all over the place. So let's make it even tougher. Okay, you're gonna design an app. How can you design failure into the app so that the user thinks that the 99 cents that they're paying for the app is worth it? Or in other words, so that it moves the action forward and helps them accomplish their job to be done. So what do you put into the app so that they can get their job to be done, happen, take, or have it happen more quickly or more easily, so that they don't come to you and tell you they want the 99 cents back? <laughs> How do you design in failure? How do you design in an experience so that they can say that, yes, this helped me get my job to be done, done, and it was worth 99 cents. So I designed an app, and I want you to actually check into it right now. So I spent about three hours, and I said, what would a decent app look like that would help you get your job to be done and actually give you an experience of faith that would help you get your job to be done and actually give you an experience of failing early on. So I want you to actually log in if you're at that page and play with the app. It's called Help Laura Make the Most of ATD 2019. Laura has just got permission to come to the conference. She has two days to get ready. She jumps on a plane. She ends up sitting right beside you on the plane from wherever she is. You're talking about how to make the most of it. Some guy from across the aisle jumps in and says, I've been to 15 of these. I know how to get most out of ATD conferences. I'm a veteran. Starts to give his advice and blah, 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 blah. A bit of a drama unfolds. So go ahead and play that. If you can play it with a partner, go ahead and do it with your partner. Go through the first three screens, which should take you to the first question. Again, you can put in a dummy email address if you want. An app in front of a live audience is dangerous business. <laughs> That's it, right? So the screen should look something like this, and on the next screen, it should give you a link that starts the Laura game. So we want to be playing the Laura game. So you should end up at a multiple choice screen, which asks you to prioritize the reasons why Laura is heading to the conference. And then there are some annoying questions which kind of make you think a little bit because it's coming from my point of view, of course. I designed the app. Okay, so in the interest of time, I'm gonna explain all of which are a bit dicey and a bit ambiguous. And they're designed to, especially that first question, this, it's really hard to get that first question right because I made it tricky. But I wanted you as the user to think through why am I here, what are my priorities, and how do they map to Laura's by actually trying to prioritize a real person's reasons for being here in a real environment. So it's a scenario, right? Just like branch learning, but a simpler version of it. So it's designed for you to fail at that first question. And then as the questions go ahead, there's probably five places, five questions that you can fail at. But the idea is to give you an opportunity 
to fail inside of the job that you want to get done. So I don't know much about conferences, to be honest. I'm not, that's not my area of expertise. In my area of expertise, which has to do with email productivity, meeting productivity, and time productivity, I can create elaborate scenarios and stories and draw fine distinctions and throw people into the deep end because I know that content really well. This, I really had, I had to Google. How do you get the most out of a conference? But I wanted to pick something I didn't know anything about to say that you can do something similar. If, you're, if you know the job to be done, it gives you access to creating a failure event that opens the learner's mind to learning. That's very different than sending them an article on 10 ways to get the most out of a conference. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The two are very different. <laughs> Someone who gets that 10-point article, skims it, and tells themselves, I already The game throws them into a bit of fun, but my point is not to give them fun. No, they think it is. This is a Trojan horse. I offer them the app and I say, let's play this game. They say, oh, buy a game. I'm really not interested in their fun. Although I am, I'm interested in them failing. Now I won't say that, but I want to give them an opportunity to try to accomplish something in an environment that's safe. And as they're doing it, I want them to evaluate their current skills. Because as you go through the LoRa app, and of course you'll have access to this after we're done, you'll see that it starts to show some gaps. Maybe for your own self, I hope, because I put a little time into it, the three hours. But evaluating is really important. And the learner who is interested in their self-development, sorry, oh boy. So to get them to live inside of that gap while they're in the training between novice and expert skills, as a novice, they think all I need is YouTube. The message I want to have you sort of get today is that eventually bite-sized learning will be replaced by artificial intelligence. My prediction. That five-minute bit of training that they can Google and grab from YouTube is going to be replaced. Someone is going to write some kind of AI that says basic XYZ training. It's going to search every resource on YouTube. It's going to find the best ones. And it's going to put them into a five-session training and provide them to the user. So for us, that sort of puts us out of the bite-sized learning business. So my point of view could be wrong, who knows, is that there's not a future for us in delivering more and more and more five-minute bite-sized training, trying to get a learner's attention before they check out isn't going to work for much longer. Instead, I want to point us in the direction of complex skills which AI will never replace. So these are filled with nuance. They're filled with fine distinctions, made up of fine distinctions that can only be drawn by someone who's an expert. Experts don't get where they are by just reading. They have experience, so they've done something and they've practiced something over time. Some of them can explain to you what they do. Some are hopeless. I just go out and do it. But the point is, the learner, if you throw them into that gap, can now see the difference between, oh, there is a difference. Reading an article is not the same as being an expert. Oh, huh, where does that leave me? Of course, the answer if you're doing this training is that it leaves them thinking that they're a novice, right? And they become interested in expert skills because it's the job they want to get done. So how do you construct this expert training? Well, one of the traditional ways is to ask an expert, how do you do that? And if you've ever asked an expert how you do that, you know that you sometimes get gobbledygook right back. Because they're not training designers. They haven't thought about it. They've forgotten 
you know, Johari winners, they've forgotten what they don't know, they don't, they, they are way past the point of stumbling over the basics. But what you can ask them is, what's the job you're trying to get done? Different kind of question. What resources do you hire to get that job done? That takes you to another level of depth and gets you past the Dunning-Kruger effect. So as you probably know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, it has two elements to it. The first element is the novice who thinks that they're better than they are. So they have all these studies where they've asked school children, how many of you are really great, or sorry, adults even, how many of you are great at math and 75% say they're above average? The first part of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that novices overestimate their skills and think they're far better than they are. So that's what's happening in your training. The Dunning-Kruger effect has already grabbed them before they even walked in. YouTube has convinced them that they're actually on the right path. The second part of the Dunning-Kruger effect is the expert who thinks everyone is doing it at the level that I am. And what is there to explain? I just roll out of bed and I, I'm an expert and do it every day. Doesn't everybody do that? It's the second part of the Dunning-Kruger effect. So, as the designer of training or the leader in training, you've got to get past both of these. We've talked about the first, which is to create the failure experience, and the second is to ask, what's the job you're trying to get done? So that you can create the failure experience for someone who's between the gap between expert and novice. The second challenge that you have is that people don't like to look at defects. Anybody here in manufacturing? In a factory? So you know the just, well, only a few people. Well, you know the Japanese teaching that 99.9% .9 success, who cares? What you want to focus on are the defects, the errors, and the mistakes that people make. But we naturally like to focus on the successes, and so does your learner. They come in thinking that, yeah, but when I get up to give a speech, it usually goes really, really well. No, there was that one time where it went really, really badly. And I have no idea why it bombed. But 99.9% .9 of the time, it does really, really well. So as a designer, you're trying to get them to focus on the defects, not the successes, the times when something didn't work. Because that's what the experts do. What the experts do is they focus on failures, they analyze them, figure out the root cause, experiment with different changes, come up with different hypotheses, and as they do so, it gives them a deeper understanding of the system they're working with. That's what experts do. And if you ask them, what's the job you're trying to get done, they sometimes will tell you. I look for the small little thing that didn't go right. I ask, why didn't it go right? And then I go deep, 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 diving, diving, diving to try and find out what the root cause was all about. The second challenge. And then the third challenge is the learner that comes in and says, oh, my life is good the way it is. I don't need really to improve anything. I'm just here because my boss said I needed to come. So what I've done sometimes is to put them in the future and say, Imagine a time when you're under stress and you need to get, there is a job that you need to get done under those circumstances. Can you get that job done? Do you have all the resources that you need? Do you know what skills and tools and information you need to hire to get that job done? So you send them into the future to imagine moments where they'll have less cognitive capacity, less willpower, less energy, and they're likely to fail. So in other words, you're rehearsing a future failure because they don't have any failures today. So you have to imagine. So in, in the world of time management in which I live, I ask people, great, so you're a first level employee, you're doing pretty well. What do you think will happen when you get married, you have three kids, you get promoted, you have to uh, do 10 projects, 10 more projects than you're doing right now? You start to put on some extra weight. You don't need to spend more time in the gym. Your mom says, how come I haven't seen you? Aren't you don't you care about us anymore? When are you coming over? You're wrapped up in your work. So you create this world in which they're failing. And you ask them to imagine it. No, they may say no, but at least 
you're preparing them for what is likely to come and what experts have to deal with. So the first step in coming up with these behaviors is just a simple mind map, which is what I use to come up with the behaviors that I put into the Laura game. Just I read about four or five articles from different blogs. And here's one of the evaluation tools that we use. So I, this isn't complete by any means. I didn't take all of the um, different behaviors that would make for a great conference. I took four just to make it simple. But the process is one that we use. So experts build their expertise on sub-skills. And what we would normally do is explain the sub-skills and just ask the learner. This is, of course, after they've had a failure event, right? So they've failed something in the training already. But now they've done the Laura game. Where are you in terms of setting targets to meet strangers when you come to a conference? So if you go into the app, I actually give you an opportunity to fill these out for yourself. But I'd like you to spend a moment doing it on paper or with your partner. Go through each of these four questions. For real, not for practice, like for real. You know, did you set a target to meet people who you don't know before you came to the conference? Did you plan to interact with your favorite speakers? What was your plan? In the Laura game, there's a specific plan that Laura comes up with. Did you build a schedule that includes time in session, time to rest, time to eat, time to take care of yourself during the next four days? And finally, did you, do you have in place something to prepare materials for your colleagues? So turn to your partner really quickly and evaluate your skills. Are you a novice, mid, or expert in each of those four skills? Okay, finish up there. So this is not rocket science, is it? No, this is not like, oh my god. But what I've found is that once the learners have the failure experience and they become interested in expert behavior, they become really curious as to where they are and how they compare against the experts. So I've only ever had someone do the training in which we use this particular approach say that they're an expert in all of the areas. And that person arrived late, <laughs> spent the whole time on the smartphone, and then left early, a professor of something or the other. I'll leave the judgment to you as <laughs> to what happened there. But once the learner is interested, they want, and you can teach them, which, which we normally would do is to teach each of the four behaviors as from the point of view of an expert. It's like, wow, I'm not there yet. I have some defects, and that's why I'm not quite there yet. So if I'm not there yet, I kind of want to be because it's inside of my job to be done. So they wouldn't say that. But you've already gotten them inside of their job to be done. How can I teach myself, now that I've evaluated myself, how can I teach myself to move to the next level? All right, let's see what we got when you. So how many of you are novices at setting targets to meet strangers? Okay. <laughs> All right. And how many of you are experts? Come on. One, two, and a half, almost. All right, so as long as you have a gap, you can move to the next step, and there almost always is a gap. Because again, one of the instructions that we give, I never gave it to you because this is a pretty simple exercise, is be conservative in your self-evaluations. So we don't use words. This is, of course, taken from the idea of using a rubric. But there's not a whole lot of research that I've found on using a rubric for your own evaluation. So I don't use the term rubric in the training. But I say, OK, be conservative. Assume that you are worse than you really are. So what I'm doing is telling them, don't fall into Dunning-Kruger effect. But I don't use that term because they don't understand that. I say, give yourself room to grow and also to get some quick wins up there. So if you're almost there, put yourself down at the next level so that you can get there by next week. Like, oh, okay, good. That way you can accomplish some movement in the near future.
Okay? So here's what a typical evaluation may look like. Just random. As I said, you need to explain and distinguish what the four behaviors, the sub-behaviors sub are. Here's what a complex self-evaluation looks like in my world, time-based productivity. If you really want to get into nitty-gritty of what I'm talking about, my book, which is in the ATD bookstore, talks about the approach that we use to develop a chart looking like this. But all right, let's go to the next step, which is targeting. So the first step is evaluation. Second step is targeting. It's just what you would expect, I think. If someone knows that they have some gaps, next step is to figure out, OK, what gaps could I close? And in this case, there are six possible improvements, right? There are four immediate improvements and two later improvements in order to become an expert. So you have them just kind of assess themselves once again. Then they can set targets for each level. So this person has said, okay, today I'm a novice, and my coaching is always the same, is that your current level is the lowest score of all the scores. It's a bit like trying to pass your driver's test. They won't pass you unless you pass everything. So this person is a novice today, and they've said, okay, I want to be a mid-something or the other by July 2019. I want to be an expert by the end of the year. So as a trainer, I'm just guiding them through this process of self-planning and self-targeting and giving them an idea of the kind of behaviors they need to put in place in order to get to the next level. I'm your coach. Ah. Oh boy. Okay, so one of the big mistakes people make as they go into self-training, and you helpfully have them understand this, is that there's a tendency to want to change a bunch of behaviors all at once. In other words, to make yourself fail unwittingly. So let me help you by making sure you don't leave here and think you're going to be Superman expert tomorrow. You just spread these changes out over time. So here's a timeline I asked them to put together. How fast do you want to move to the next level? If you want. Some people sometimes say they don't want to move to the next level, but it's rare. I can't think it's apart from the one guy. Well. But they're interested in moving to the next level. And I tell them, listen, this is a complex system you're working with. Because it usually is. Remember, we're talking about complex skills, not simple stuff. And in a complex system, you have to be very strategic about which items you try to improve and when. So the pacing is important, but also the choice and priority of which behaviors to focus on. Because you don't want to fail, right? So my coaching is you spread them out over time. Put it in your calendar. Create actions that you can take. And that will help you to become an expert by December 31st. So most learners appreciate the, oh, God, I don't have to like go and try and kill myself over the next. I can actually focus on one behavior at a time. And then I could become an expert like the experts. And I tell them, experts didn't become that way overnight either. You can't. They didn't. Don't try. Make it easy for yourself to win. And then finally, the, again, maybe this is the biggest mistake of all that learners make, is to not support themselves in making these changes, these behavior changes. So at the end of a training, you probably, the motivation is high, right? They're excited. They're feeling like Superman. And a week later, you run into them in the hall and say, hey, how's it going? Awful. Because reality has hit them. They're at the height of their motivation one minute after the training is over. And it's all downhill from there. <laughs> so the plan that they put together didn't account for the drop in motivation. So what you tell them is you have got to create supports that will allow you to keep going even when the going gets tough, even when you get tired, even when you're under stress, even when... How can you create that for yourself? And I, you know, I play the, rule, play the role of useful idiot. I can't tell you. I don't know you. 
look like a nice guy. I don't know you. I don't know. I can't tell you what to do. You have to craft these supports for yourself if you have a chance of becoming an expert in your time frame. So you now need to be an expert planner right now. Put together the plan. Let's see what it looks like. Share it with your partner. And I may, I may mention that, I always mention that there are people are weak at, we're weak at maintaining behavior chains, changes, but of course, thanks to Dun Dunning-Kruger, they don't think so. So I have to convince them, I think I could do a better job of doing it, but to convince them that you're not as strong as you think you are. And your mind is gonna play a trick on you right now because the training, I've made it look so easy and so transparent, and your plan looks so great, you're really invested in it. So I tell them about gamification. Anybody here used an app called Zwift? Yeah, Zwift. Yeah. Zwift? So Zwift is a, uh, an e-game. It's a way of tricking people to ride their bicycle. <laughs> Trick. While they're competing against people from all over the world. So you jump on your bicycle, it's hooked up to the internet using a sensor. You jump on it, you ride, and you ride against people from all over. You race. I started using it about three weeks ago. I'm a cyclist, and I love it. So gamification works, as you know. So I try to introduce them to opportunities to gamify the changes that they want to make. I don't do, I spend a lot of time on it because it's a kind of expertise that I don't think they can develop just like that. But if they can get the idea, if they can even partner with someone else, set some targets and work with them as a group. Then you get the social aspect. Now we have some actual targets to work with. We have a time frame. In different companies, I've put together training that lasts for six months after my intervention, where they have teams and groups, and they compete with each other, and they have prizes. And you can really go to town on this. But the end result is that you have a system that allows the user or the learner to support their behavior changes over time. That's the point. And Zwift is a great example of that. I'll leave you with a quote from Amy jo Jill Kim. She's an expert game designer. And she's doing a lot of work around product development. She says, create experiences, or create an experience that gets better as the learner becomes more skilled. So when you go back to your office, there's an experience that a beginner would have. And I've argued the case that bite-sized learning, which is for beginners, is going to be replaced by AI anytime soon. But at higher levels of learning, there's paying attention to their experience so that they can bump into the failure that would spur them to the next level at just the right time. That's our job, to move them along this trajectory of learning way past the initial basic training that's been getting so much attention recently. So somewhere out there, there's a modern learner waiting for you to come back. She needs help to get her job to be done. She's looking to you to go work out the training that she needs from all these subject matter experts. She wants you to design in a failure event. She wants you to engage her. She wants you to give her an experience that she can't forget, and she wants you to build a gap between where she is and where she could be and what expertise really looks like. She wants to be saved from the Dunning-Kruger effect. So she has a big job to be done. Will you help? So much for my timing, right? <laughs> huh, that, that. Will you help? So let's take some questions. We have. The next session, I think, starts at 4.30. So we have a few minutes for questions. There is a mic right here, right here at the front. Right, so that's a failure on our part. So that failure was a failure of the coach. So the general idea is that we can go overboard, yes. And we can have someone so dispirited that they decide to give up. So we as learn as trainers, training designers, need to be super sensitive to the fact that a failure event is not about having someone go into a depression because of how bad they are. It's about turning on the light bulbs, and that takes very careful design. 
That's the only answer that I really have. Careful design, design. and intention. One more question. Well, I'm a big fan of doing, having them do a scenario-based branch learning training, simply because it's easy to get into. It, you can somewhat immerse a person in, in a fake world that is somewhat realistic. And then as they're in that world, you present the choices. The Laurel, the Laurel's game is an in my half well, attempt to do that. If you can work with an SME, they can help you make the environment that much more real. So as you, the first example, or the first time you try it, it may be very, eh. But as you work with an SME and make it more sophisticated and understand why he or she makes the choices he or she makes, you can weave them into the game and make it that much better. So I'm a big fan of branch learning for that reason. It's a safe way to fail. People think it's fun and it's a game. You're really introducing this gap to their experience. So I, 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 online, this is also, it's not the only way, of course. I've done feedback training, where the essence of the feedback training was, you're probably all aware, you put people in front of a video, you have them do a role play. You give them five minutes of instruction before, but the real learning happens when they see themselves on the tape, and they go, oh my. <laughs> and they can't believe how bad. And if you have everyone go you know, and do a videotape and be debriefed by their peers and by you, that's another way to do it. It's, it doesn't scale as well. You can't train 100 people using that method. But it's actually part of where I got this, the, the, the notion that this failure opens people's minds to, to learning, even if they're smart people. Is that useful? Great. Folks, I think this is, I'm going to hang around for quite a bit. Tomorrow I'm, on Wednesday I'm actually giving a free talk, if you're interested in time-based productivity, to be in DC. You can come and get me for details, but I'll also be in the books. <laughs> I'll be in the bookstore <laughs> tomorrow at 1.30, signing my book, if you'd like to come and talk with me some more. And I'll be here until then. Take care, everyone. Thanks for being a great audience. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin.